in many films and tales, the villain, the monster, the force of evil is clothed and are represented by which color? Black. Black. Black is the scariest color, we think, because it hints at darkness, the unknown, the lump of coal in your stocking. Darth Vader was clothed entirely in black. Witches dress in black, all the way up to the top of their pointed hats. And Voldemort's attire? A long black robe. But we all know that black is not really the scariest color. What is the most terrifying color? We may be afraid to admit this, even to ourselves, but deep down we all intuitively understand that the most petrifying, chilling, horrifying color is white. White, the color of purity, innocence, virtue. Despite our association of white with angelic heavenliness, or maybe exactly because of this association, it is somehow far more petrifying than its opposite, black. I don't know about you, but I find the outfits of the Ku Klux Klan far more blood-curdling than those of ISIS. You are listening to The Shrift, Life Tip 23, 1 Kings 7. You shouldn't give me too much credit for this idea, because I actually stole it from Herman Melville, author of Moby Dick. I found much of Moby Dick to be unreadable, but in one chapter, which Melville entitled The Whiteness of the Whale, Melville discusses why white is the most terrifying of all colors. Melville, through the narration of his character Ishmael, of Call Me Ishmael, tries to understand why Captain Ahab is so obsessed with the whale Moby Dick. And Ishmael concludes that it has something to do with the whiteness of the whale. Ishmael asks, quote, Why, in reading the old fairy tales of Central Europe, does the tall, pale man of the heart's forests, whose changeless pallor unrustlingly glides through the green of the groves, why is this phantom more terrible than all the whooping imps of the Blocksburg." Unquote. One of Ishmael's theories is that white is typically a color of innocence and purity. When white becomes attached to a frightening object, the clash of associations in our minds is what gives rise to the terror. Ishmael writes, quote, Witness the white bear of the poles and the white shark of the tropics, what but their smooth, flaky whiteness makes them the transcendent horrors that they are? The ghastly whiteness is, which, is that which imparts such an abhorrent mildness, even more loathsome than terrific, to the dumb gloating of their aspect, so that not the fierce fanged tiger in his herotic coat can so stagger courage as the white shrouded bear or shark." Unquote. Or, perhaps, White is so terrifying because it is not a color at all, but rather the absence of color. It reminds us of the inherent emptiness of existence, the silence that underlies everything. 
Ishmael thus writes, quote, Is it that by its indefiniteness it shadows forth the heartless voids and immensities of the universe, and thus stabs us from behind with the thought of annihilation when beholding the white depths of the Milky Way? Or is it that, as an essence, whiteness is not so much a color as the visible absence of color, and at the same time the concrete of all colors? Is it for these reasons that there is such a dumb blankness, full of meaning, in a wide landscape of snows, a colorless, all color of atheism from which we shrink?" Unquote. What makes Ishmael's theory, Melville's theory, on the color white so intriguing is that it completely reverses our preconception. White, we always thought, was the color of an angel, and yet somehow it really is the color of the angel of death. Indeed, sometimes it seems as though existence is nothing but these ironic reversals. The hottest color is not red or orange, but actually the color of coolness, blue. The most far-right political groups often merge idealistically with their opposites, the far left. It is incredible how, over and over again, we see that the best advice you may ever receive is, do the opposite. If you want to appear strong, show that you are weak and vulnerable. If you want to seem masculine, adopt feminine traits. If you want to appear wise and intelligent, make it apparent how little you know and how often you make mistakes. If you want to be in control, let go. If I could sum up Friedrich Nietzsche's philosophy in one phrase, it would be, do the opposite. What you think of as good is actually evil. What seems to be a display of strength is actually evidence of weakness. That which is casted as truth is often just one's highly personal and subjective opinion. What appears to be morality and justice is usually just petty revenge. How did this state of affairs come to pass? Indeed, Nietzsche would literally ask this question at the beginning of his 1887 work, Beyond Good and Evil. Nietzsche wrote that, quote, How could anything originate out of its opposite? Truth from error, for instance, or the will to truth from the will to deception, or selfless action from self-interest, or the pure, sun-bright gaze of wisdom from a covetous leer? In answer to this question, Nietzsche simply states, quote, Such origins are impossible, and people who dream about such things are fools at best. In short, Nietzsche is saying that actions must be authentic and genuine for them to be legitimate. If your core drive is to deceive, you cannot then embark upon a will to truth. If your underlying cause is self-interestedness, your selfless action is meaningless. If deep down you are covetous and leering and hateful, the pure, sun-bright gaze of wisdom you show to the world is brittle, if not dangerous. We might compare Nietzsche's worldview to a tree. If the tree itself is poisoned and decaying within, the fruit it bears will also be rotten. Even if the fruit looks fresh and shiny and delicious, when you actually crack it open and peer inside, you will see that it is just as rotten as the tree from which it grew. You might be wondering at this point how all of this relates to Moby Dick and the white whale. What I'm trying to say is that the reason why a white shark or whale is so much freakier than a black shark 
is because the white shark is going out of its way not to look scary. It's white after all. The black shark, by contrast, seems to be decorated. Its black color seems to be a ruse to make us more afraid. And once we detect that, but for the shark's blackness, it wouldn't be that frightening, we calm down a bit. Let's return to the tree for a moment. A healthy tree will simply be a healthy tree. That is, solely because it is healthy and strong and firmly planted in the ground, it will have no trouble bearing fruit. And if the tree is itself healthy and robust, its fruit will reflect this vigor. The fruit will no longer be a mask to hide how unhealthy the poison tree is. Instead, the fruit will be evidence of and a natural outcome of the strong and vigorous tree. Put another way, a healthy tree cannot help but bear fruit. Nietzsche would call this idea abundance or overflow. Nietzsche believed that we should come to the aid of those who suffer, but not out of pity for them or so that we can feel like we are moral people doing the right thing, and certainly not so we can feel morally superior to others. Rather, compassion should come from a life overflowing with a sense of joy and affirmation so that we naturally wish to help others. This idea can be found in Nietzsche's landmark work, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, from 1885. He writes in Part 2, Section 3, quote, Verily, I may have done this and that for sufferers, but always I seem to have done better when I learned to feel better joys. As long as there have been men, man has felt too little joy. That alone, my brothers, is our original sin. And learning better to feel joy, we learn best not to hurt others or to plan hurts for them." Unquote. This idea can be helpfully extended to our views of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus proclaimed that he loved all people. But how can one really love all people? After all, there are so many evil people in the world, and there are an even greater number of simply annoying ones. I would argue that Jesus provides an extreme example of how there can be two types of love. How did Jesus love all people? He could have done so first if he built up an ideology in which he, so disgusted with life and its cruelties, believed that all people were deserving of love. This love would originate from a desire to compensate people for the injustice and suffering of life which they were unfairly born into. This type of love would obviously be akin to fruit from a rotten tree, love built upon hate and anger and pity. However, Jesus may have loved all people through other foundations. Perhaps Jesus was radiant with joyous energy. Perhaps he was like the sun, so infused with warmth that this light naturally dazzled others. Perhaps Jesus had infinite light to give, just as the sun can as easily warm up one billion as seven billion people without sacrificing any of its energy. We have, then, two possible Jesuses who claim to have loved all of humankind. One whose love is worthless and corrosive, the other whose love is infinite and genuine. Both types of these trees can give off an endless supply of fruit, but as soon as you bite into the apple, you will know the difference. 
The Haftarah for this week is read in tandem with the Parsha of Pekudai, concluding the book of Exodus. The Haftarah comes from the book of Kings. In this Haftarah, we read of Solomon's founding of the first temple in Jerusalem in the wake of his father David's death. One primary purpose of this temple is to house the Ten Commandments in the Holy of Holies. The Ten Commandments are being kept in the Ark of the Covenant, which is a golden chest or box. King David had been keeping the Ark of the Covenant in a tent at his palace on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Solomon's task is to go and get the Ark and then place it in the holiest room of his new temple. In this reading, we get to peek inside of the Ark and see, in short, what all of the fanfare is about. We get to see what this golden box is protecting. In chapter 8, verse 9, we learn exactly what is inside. Quote, There was nothing in the Ark except for the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb, when Hashem made his promise to the descendants of Jacob after they had come out of the land of Egypt. Unquote. So, there was nothing in the ark except for, essentially, two pieces of stone with writing on them. The Torah makes this explicit by stating there was nothing in the ark except for the two tablets of stone. For those looking into the box for the first time, this moment would seem to be the epitome of anticlimactic, the ultimate letdown. That's it? Just two slabs of stone? But that is exactly the point. The tablets themselves are so innately sacred that they transcend the need for any decoration, accompaniment, or bravado. In fact, ironically, the very ordinariness and austerity of the tablets makes them appear ornate, sumptuous, and baroque. It is as if they communicate, we are so inherently holy that we don't need any ornamentation to showcase our worthiness. And this authenticity, this pride in going maskless, only further bolsters their aura. The tablets are like Nietzsche's overflowing Zarathustra. Their inner glow renders any decorations upon them superfluous and even counterproductive. The tablets are like the white whale. By almost trying not to intimidate, they become all the more astounding. Meditation follows the same logic. We have certain stereotypical images of meditation in the popular imagination. The bearded hippie reciting OM over and over again while sitting under a tree. The yoga instructor telling you that she feels drawn to your energy and was once reincarnated as a cat. The monk wearing a red toga sitting cross-legged on the beach while gazing out toward the sea. In fact, real meditation is, like the tablets, ordinary and unremarkable. It requires just sitting in a chair, closing your eyes, and doing nothing for a little while. You don't need to dress up for it, to hum notes, to put on any background music, to recite any mantras. And ironically, this meditation, by not trying to impress you with how zen it is, by accepting its simplicity, enhances its aura and becomes even more zen. Hence my life tip for this week to wear a t-shirt. 
Mark Zuckerberg is the CEO of Facebook and is one of the wealthiest and most powerful individuals in the world. Yet, he dresses like a clueless college student. He wears the same t-shirt every day. How can Zuckerberg do this and get away with doing this? Because he's so rich and so powerful that he can actually dress like he's poor and thereby, ironically, appear all the more rich. He adopted this trick from Apple's late CEO, Steve Jobs, who, despite his billions of dollars, dressed like your underpaid piano teacher. Jobs had reached the point of money and power where he so overflowed with wealth and authority that he could go out of his way to appear not rich, only to make him seem all the more prosperous. This tactic is not limited just to fashion and financial status. It can be used across an array of fields. Develop such a rich vocabulary and a command of grammar that you relish the use of cliches and slang. Become a black belt in karate so that you can walk through the city in a pink dress and 1950s cat-eye sunglasses. Read Shakespeare's tragedies so that you can show up to work with a copy of Fifty Shades of Grey. Remember, suits are for the rich and powerful, but t-shirts? T-shirts are for the plutocrats. Thank you.